0: History is his story. Today I've been reading world history in the era of about 1000 BC, a couple of hundred years before, a couple of hundred, 300, well, actually 500 years after. It was so exciting. <laughs> It was the time when Greece was coming out of what they called the Greek Dark Age. It was the city-states. The city of Athens was a big deal around 1000 BC. So, if you went to the coffee shop in somewhere, sat down and read the newspaper, there would be a lot of stuff about Athens, Egypt. Egypt was still strong on the scene. Assyria was up and coming. You know, back maybe five pages back in a little tiny article, you might read where some guy named David had just become a king of an up and coming little nation that was emerging from its own dark ages. Just wasn't that big of a deal in the world. But it consumes the Bible regarding that time of history because the world inevitably is moving toward the king of kings ruling over the kingdom, which will be the great kingdom of God. And so what we study in the scriptures with regard to that time frame focuses on David because God didn't make a covenant with the king of Athens nor did he make a covenant with Ashurbanipal or Tiglath-Pileser or whoever that Egyptian guy was. He didn't make a covenant with them, he made a covenant with David. Because what was happening in that little part of the world was the plan of God, by the will of God, in the purpose of God, and it would affect the people of God forever. It was another covenant. It was the covenant of David. So we read in the Bible about this, and we don't really read any of the other things that the world history books would tell us. Names that are, you know, seven syllables long in other parts of the world, even which dynasty was big and, and in existence in China uh, in those days. It wasn't called China, it was Zihu or something like that. But the Word of God focuses on David and Israel. Because in an unbroken fashion, the promise of the seed of woman and the great Messiah, all of the promises through the generations has now come, those promises have come to rest on David. He carries the promise of the Christ. We've studied already how large his household was and so he had all these, I think, what was it, 20 sons or something like that? So we know already that the next generation is in place carrying the promise of the Christ. That's the important thing for you and me. It's, it's, it's not so much who's doing this or who's doing that in what part of the world. Because I, unless, I wouldn't have remembered, unless unless you have a keen memory of what, when was world history when I was in school? Ninth or tenth grade maybe? Something like that. Unless you have a keen memory of that kind of thing, you don't remember what was happening in 1000 BC in the world. Now if you have a chronological Bible and you read your Bible regularly, you would would know what part of the Bible was teaching us about that time of history in in the world with regard to the Bible. But the rest of the world, though in the world's eyes, possessed the greatness of the world, it was irrelevant to the purpose of God, except how it may have affected the people of God. And in that day, David and his kingdom. So the story focuses on David and how God moves in the hearts of the people so that David's kingdom r- relative to the history of Israel is a great kingdom and relative to the region where he lived uh, was, a, was a mighty kingdom. It became prosperous and, and his, his army was strong. And we're going to see that here in this passage of scripture. So if you would open God's precious holy word to 1 First, uh, First Chronicles. What did I say? Corinthians? Chronicles. 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 12. And we'll be in verses 23 through 40. Now, what I'm going to do is when we're in this kind of, I think of it as a historical pattern in the Bible and there are verses here and there that homiletically could really develop a nice message and so forth but i'm 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 following the flow of things here and so looking at it in the in the spiritually historical sense we will read pretty much through these verses and then i have some things and i have it on the slides Some thoughts and some things that we should reflect on when we look at this part of the scripture. So here we go. I'm backing up actually and picking up a verse that we finished with last time, but it sort of leads into this section. For from day to day, men came to David to help him until it became a huge camp or army like the army of Elohim. And these are the numbers of the chiefs of the armed men of the army who came to David to Hebron to turn Saul's kingdom to him according to the decree of Yahweh. Now that's important. What, 10 years or so, David ran from Saul. Saul sought to kill David. David even collapsed into a time of uh, of Just depression or whatever when he went to live with the Philistine, he just got tired. But Yahweh had made a decree and even that in the life of David was not going to stop Yahweh from doing what he said he would do. So this is by the purpose of Yahweh and it is by the decree of Yahweh. Now, Saul for all those years, David for those years running from Saul... But the circumstances were that because David was a shepherd who had the compassion of a shepherd regarding sheep, he cared for people. He didn't want them to be hurt. He didn't want them to suffer. He wanted them to be able to eat. He wanted wanted them to be able to be fed. And he wanted them to be secure, so his army is out there gaining gaining popularity and endearing. David is endearing himself to the people, and it wasn't really so much his uh, his purpose in life. This this wasn't what he was seeking to do. This was just David doing what David did. It was David being David. The men who you may go if you go way back. When we studied how the men originally came to David and uh, they had suffered under the, under king saul they they had become bankrupt, they lost everything, and their families were suffering and they came from everywhere and they just joined themselves to David. David took care of them he, was, he cared for them, and so they, they become the beginning of his army. and then we've just studied last time about David's mighty men. We'll study more about them, God willing, as we get into this. Uh, account of the life of David in the scriptures so it starts way back with these men who who become an army of several hundred and then they grow in their effectiveness and in their skills they're men of courage like the bible says they had faces like lions and these were his these were his most highly skilled warriors, they've been with him for a while, they learned everything about how to fight a war, whether to fight guerrilla type warfare or to fight by stealth or to fight by deception, mind leading techniques, whatever. They knew how to fight psychologically and they knew how to fight, of course, physically. But the Lord brings all of this thing down to us and we get this from the Psalms, which we're not going to be referencing as we go through the history. But here and there, David is inspired to write a Psalm and we we get the spiritual part of it more from the Psalms that are connected to certain time frames uh, than than in the, the account of the history itself. Except when we come across this line here where this is by Yahweh's decree The sons of Judah bearing shield and spear, 6,800 armed men of the army. Sons of Simeon, mighty warriors for the army, 7,100. Sons of the Levites, 4,600. Jehoiada was the ruler of Aaron, and with him were 3,700. Zadok was a youth, a mighty warrior, and his father's house had 22 officers. And of the sons of Benjamin, Saul's brethren... Were three thousand. This is this is an important insertion. These these people had been very loyal, of course, to Saul, but now as the Spirit of God moves across across Israel, and David has been anointed the king, in 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 a in a sense officially by the by the elders and tribal leaders, which he had been anointed by Samuel much earlier. But they've all agreed now across Israel that David is their king. And people are, these men are coming from everywhere to join the army of David. And heretofore their majority had kept the watch of the house of Saul. So you see, Saul is just becoming a a faint memory. It's all about David by Yahweh's decree. And of the sons of Ephraim, 20,800 mighty warriors, famous men of their fathers' houses. Of the half-tribe of Manasseh, 18,000 who were designated by names to come and to crown David. And of the sons of Issachar, those who had an understanding of the times to know what Israel should do. Their chiefs were 200 and all their brethren obeyed their word. Men, these men of discernment i 've heard a lot of sermons, I guess you have two on that verse thirty two of Zebulun, these going out in the army with all sorts of weapons, fifty thousand, and who could wage war and were not of double heart, loyal, and of Naphtali a thousand officers and with them with shield and spear thirty seven thousand, and of the Danites who set up the battle array twenty eight thousand and six hundred, and of Asher those going out in the army to wage war, 40,000. And from across the Jordan of the Reubenites and the Gadites half, and the half tribe of Manasseh with all sorts of weapons, 120,000. All these were men of war setting up the battle array. Wholeheartedly they came to Hebron to crown David over all of Israel. And also the entire remnant of Israel was of one heart to crown David. And they were there with David for three days, eating and drinking, for their brethren had made preparations for them, and also those near to them, until Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali were bringing food on donkeys and on uh, camels and on mules and on cattle, food made of flour, dried figs and raisins and wine and oil and cattle and sheep in abundance, for there was joy in Israel." This is, a, this is a a very large army. They've come from everywhere. They have pledged their loyalty to David. The Spirit of God was on David. And they were drawn to him. I mean, this is a spiritual thing. It's not just a, you know, it's 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 not just a rally or a pep rally or what. This is a spiritual thing. They were drawn to David. And knowing David and following David and watching David and seeing the heart of David, they became very loyal to David, all of these, all of these warriors. So they came from all around. This would have been one of the biggest parties the world had ever seen. You know, tens of thousands of people and surely Many members of their families would have been there, and they were enjoying food and just having a party for, for the joy of coming together as the nation of Israel. It was, a, it was, in a sense, the birth of a kingdom. Now, there had been a kingdom under Saul, but nothing like this. So this section ends with this beautiful phrase, there was joy in Israel, now I want to make several points that we should reflect upon as we think of Yahweh moving through history, and we're in this place and in this time because this is where Yahweh has placed us, and it's no mistake. And we are a part of uh, of those who are who are committed to the King of Kings and headed to the to the Kingdom of God. These are things we should reflect upon as we think of this section of the Bible. The chronicler doesn't speak of a nation that was formed under the influence of David, but it speaks of a union of Israel that made David king. The, the beautiful thing here is the people became one. This, they, this, you go back to the book of Judges and you go through the history of Israel, this just, this just doesn't happen in Israel. But it did here. Here. The people are coming together. And this was a thing that God was doing through David, but in a greater sense, in the hearts of Israel. From all around, they, they were one as a nation. The chronicler shows that uh, the union of Israel came about through David as he gathered popular support during a protracted conflict with Saul. Now, this, this popular support didn't come overnight, this was a thing, I've talked about this before, but this was a thing of years and years when David would help people when they needed it the most and they were threatened with the Philistines and suddenly David's army would show up. Uh, that, that kind of thing happened all around, all over the place uh, through all of these years. And without realizing it, David was garnering all of this support all around in the various tribes of, of Israel. Now there's a story here for all of those groups who came to support David, but, but the, the, the writer of the Chronicles doesn't give us those details, I and mean, then we get some of those in 2 Samuel, but he doesn't give us the details of the sojourns of David among the Philistines, or even the battles uh, with the Philistines, um, and the tenures at the stronghold, and at Ziklag, and so forth, and the period of the rule, this is more of a this is more of a spiritual thing. Uh, the work of God moving along. And by the beginning and by the ending of David's reign in Hebron, the author of the Chronicles recognizes this long rise to power uh, had come, but he doesn't give us the violent details or the divisive details. He's just stating it in a in a spiritual sense, certain things happened, but Yahweh was always in control. It was by the decree of Yahweh. Um, the picture that emerges is that of an orderly and continually expanding intertribal consensus. They were now a nation, a kingdom. They weren't just loosely scattered tribes And with their tribal elders and their tribal interests. It wasn't that anymore. They've come together as a nation, as a kingdom. And this keeps going under King David. David protects them. He expands the borders of the land. And in all of this, the people become more and more prosperous through the leadership of King David. The rise of David also is depicted in the scriptures here as being divinely ordained, the decree of Yahweh. The account begins with the words from Yahweh back in 1 Chronicles 11, you may remember, last time, you will shepherd my people Israel and it is you who will be leader over my people Israel. Now you see, God is at work, when God says something like this to anybody, God is not just at work in the life of David, God is at work in the hearts of thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of Israelites as well. The decision of the gathered army to turn the kingdom over to David was by the word of Yahweh. We saw that in verse 23. Now, popular election. This is interesting. Okay, this divine election, you know. Simultaneously acknowledges and implements divine election. Popular election acknowledges and implements divine election. Here's what that means. The people find themselves together. They find themselves being drawn together. They find themselves being cemented as a single nation and a kingdom unlike at any time in their history. There was no division. Now they know that they're God's people. And so now when they look around and they say, you know, God did this, you come to realize, I mean, that's the way it is in our lives. You know, we, we look back on things and we think we had a lot to do with a lot of things, but we come to a point in life where we look back and say that God was in that. God did this. It couldn't have been any other way. So this is how the people are. And that's a wonderful attitude for the people to have. The royal rule requires that both the popular support of the people and the expressed will of God be understood. Both both are required. The popular support of the people and the expressed will of God. And we'll find in the life of David that he's not beyond the chastisement of God. David draws some of his greatest support from the tribes that are the most distant from his own tribe, which was Judah. Of the approximate 340,800 troops drawn from the various Israelite tribes, only 9,800 came from Judah and and Benjamin. Uh, But then Levi and Benjamin and and all these others had their own, but they didn't equal Dan, who brought 28,600 soldiers. So logically, the people of Judah would be the greatest in number. You would think it was the, the, the tribe of Judah was as, was as large and numerous as all of the other tribes put together. You would think Judah would have contributed by far uh, the most uh, warriors uh, because the native monarch, who was David... Uh, would be serving their interests the most since he would come from them. It's not the way it was because the chronicler goes to great lengths to promote David as king for all Israel, not just for Judah, though he had been king of Judah for seven years. Now, the support that he receives from outside his immediate base of power consolidates his kingship just like Yahweh said it would as a further sign of the divine initiative in the anointing of David way back in the time of Samuel. David is not the one who makes Israel. God, through his people Israel, are the ones who established the throne of David. David was doing all this stuff. He was endearing the people to him. He was winning the wars. He was doing everything right. As much as he could, he made sure That even in the time of Saul, when he was overlooking the people in his crazed pursuit of David, it was David who made sure that these people were protected and that they had food on the table. That made a big difference. Well, this was Yahweh moving in the the lives of, of David and the other people. And they all came together by the power of God to establish the throne of David. The point being, and we've seen this when he refused to kill Saul, for example, when he had a couple of opportunities. The point being that David did not force himself into this position. God brought him there. God made it. God established it. And this was by the will and the decree of Yahweh. Now, back to world history. You're not going to see that. You're not going to find that in the king of Athens or or the pharaoh of Egypt or, or, or any of these others. That's, that's not what's happening. They had a purpose in some, in some way, but only relative to what God's purpose was, was accomplishing there in the nation of Israel. The symmetry of the divine and human initiatives culminates in that last verse, that last phrase, a joyful banquet as one of the high points in the history of Israel. Now, the long protracted conflict uh, that we were told in 2 Samuel 2 and went all the way through chapter four, in which David's army subdued the warriors of Saul is not included in the chronicler's version of David's rise to power in Hebrew because that's not the point that God is trying to make in, in this part of the story of David. Now, the growing consensus ends in the solidarity of a great celebration at Hebron. Final points. The chronicler needed to provide another dimension to the story of how Israel came to be a kingdom united under David. He had to show this thing from, the, from heaven's perspective. Yes, It included a lot of bloodshed and warfare and there were a lot of things that went on and uh, there were even conspiracies and there was murder a couple of times and all this stuff. But all of it, this is not the purpose. This is not what the chronicler wants to portray. What he here wants to portray is the power of God to move in this world to accomplish his will. And those, those who are spiritually mature we'll have to understand that we don't always know exactly what's going on, but we know God's in charge and he has me here for some purpose, regardless of how small it may seem to me. Yahweh will use it for his greater purpose. And this is, I think something that all of Israel comes to realize when they all come together in this joyous occasion to in a united fashion, proclaim that David is King. Interestingly, when we read the whole account of of 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, and so forth, when you read it, human jealousy and conflict is part of the process by which God sovereignly accomplishes his purposes. This is, those details are given somewhere else, but it is the the overall divine sovereign purpose of God that is brought out in First Chronicles here. That's what's being said. It's important that these not be perpetuated uh, in the community. Those, you know, how, how, how we used to not like each other and we used to, that's, that's, not, that's not what Yahweh will present here as they all come together. Uh, in the history of the people here, uh, there was there was a there was an important theme that God was continuously at work bringing the people together into a united kingdom. You know, uh, for example, there had been a back up uh, here. Benjamin and Judah were tribal neighbors whose past included intense rivalry and warfare, and the history of those rivalries had potential to extend into this time that we're reading about in Chronicles uh, because prominent families in each tribe were acutely aware of the history. But the decree of Yahweh just seems to put all of that behind everybody and they come together under David. So the finally, final point, the chronicler is not seeking to repeat the past but to relate the past so that it may foster a similar unity and opportunity in the community of his time. My my daddy was a pastor for more than 60 years. He was a preacher. He wasn't a pastor all that time, but he used to preach about the denominational differences that people had and back you know admittedly back some decades ago people were a little more tolerant of people of other denominations because there was a day believe it or not that we all could agree or at least most of us could agree on the fundamentals that were that were the base foundation of importance this one foundation is laid in no other. And so I remember we used to come together on a Thanksgiving community service. And it would bounce back and forth between the Baptist church and the Methodist church every year. So the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, the churches and the community would come together, six, seven of them. And because those two churches had the biggest sanctuaries, they would go back and forth and Interestingly, a, a different pastor, there was a rotation of all of those pastors so that uh, the next guy on the list would preach the Thanksgiving sermon. But even, even though there were doctrinal differences in, in, some, in some ways, People agreed on the deity of Christ, that there's no other Savior. They, they agreed on the infallibility of Scripture. There, was, there were various interpretations of certain parts of it and all that kind of thing. This was back in those days. We, we don't see that so much today. But back in those days, and my daddy used to say in sermons where he was talking about what we're looking at here... The, the time of judgment When, when Christians are, are reconciled to one another we, You know There's just there's just Man there's just a whole lot of people that owe me an apology I tell you they're all dead So they, you know they gotta say they gotta Step up to the plate Now, nah, A lot of people feel that way I had a pre- preacher friend one time Who had a big problem at a church And there was a particular deacon Who gave him most of the problem And that deacon passed away in the course of time after my preacher friend had left that church. And then my preacher friend had a younger brother, two years younger than him, who died of cancer. And we'll call, we'll call the brother, we'll call him Billy. I remember my preacher friend Saying, "I hope Billy looks up that deacon and just whoops his rear end all over heaven." <laughs> well, it don't work that way. When when we lay down this old body, there's a whole lot of stuff that goes with it that we won't have to struggle with anymore. My daddy used to preach and say. It just might be that the person you despise the most in church will be the person not only you'll have to sit, to, sit next to at the supper table in heaven, but you might just have to live next door to them forever. Um, well, this is the way, I mean, this is a little scene, if we could just see it, a little scene of thousands and thousands of Israelites who previously had endured jealousies and conflicts and and so forth are coming together unlike at any other time and it's because God has a purpose to protect David and the household of David. When I look at these wars that David will fight and and I consider these warriors and these armies and the mighty men they they are there by the will of God to protect The promise of God, which David carries within himself. And that goes all the way through history. The time had come for, in the the time of, of the Persians, the time had come for the people to be released from Babylonian captivity. Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, others, with great courage they came back they were surrounded by enemies and and they were hated by those people when they were allowed to come back and rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple and rebuild the city and try to start some kind of life again for the Jews who had come out of out of uh, bondage. And, and God divinely protected them, not with other Jews, but with men who were Gentile kings And God would stir their hearts so that they would do what was necessary to protect those people because those very people are the ones who themselves carried the promise of the Christ, those who had descended from from David um, especially. And it's been that way all the way through history. And we pass through this part of David's life Understanding that this is just God at work in that time, fulfilling his covenant, taking care of his people, even though they hadn't been born yet, taking care of his own to finally bring us to himself and receive glory and honor and power from everything that's going to happen. We're going to stop there and we'll have our uh, deacon prayer time.